Welcome back to the Guiding Light Podcast. I'm your host, Shane McClellan, and we are going to continue from two weeks ago where I have my dad with me, and we are talking about Russia, Mongolia, and the Trans-Siberian train. The last time we dropped off the podcast, we were in the Yakuts up in Siberia, correct? Correct. Okay, and we just talked about how we got to our hotel, but the reason we went to Yakuts was not for the hotel or the town itself, was we had a little tour set up, and I think it was two days, to go out and see Lena Pillars on the Lena River, which is the 11th longest river in the world. And these pillars are actually a World Heritage Site, I found out later. And it's just a natural formation where, think of like a cliff wall where it's been chiseled out by wind and rain to make pillars. Looks like pillars, yes. And what do you think of that? Oh, I thought it was interesting, and it was fun to climb around. I was more interested that the Lennon River was so wide that, that some of the narrow sports would be half mile right wide, and some that would go to a mile wide. I was surprised. And they had big barges that went up and down it. It was no, not a shallow river either. And it flowed. I mean, you could see the current as wide as it was. You could still see that current. Yes. The pillars are interesting. I found in my life, though, that Bryce Canyon is just as good or better than the Lennon Pillars. That's what it reminded me of was Bryce Canyon. It, it did a lot, yes. Except it was like half of Bryce Canyon. You look at one side... And then Bryce Canyon would have the wall on the other side. This one was kind of plains on the other side. Well, not only that, but the rock was more whitish in this, and Bryce Canyon had more color to it. Okay. And my dad, who has had some heart issues and stuff, decided to let me go hike up to the top of the pillars, which was a very good hike. You know, if you remember, the part that I thought was the coolest was after we came down, we were invited over you know, a couple hundred yards off to the side to the park ranger's hut. And they fed us. <laughs> and they fed us, and we didn't play cards with them. We just, they fed us, they showed us where they stayed, and, how they, and they told us everything about how they did the program and everything. And we spent like an hour in there. Yes. They lived in this, and it was only... It wasn't that big in one room, and it might have been the size of a, a little bigger than average ba- bedroom, and that was the whole hut. Right, and let me emphasize, this was not like the visitor center or anything. This was literally where they lived, their kitchen. They had to move some bean cans out of the way and and what you know whatever so it, that was kind of cool just hanging out with them and three of them lived in that hut together and i think the supplies came up once a week on the boat or something yeah and, but they're only there during the summer months you know for like five months a year or something and i don't think anybody's there during the winter i don't think they were either because we're talking right now we are about 500 miles south of the arctic circle and it was nice when we were there, but I wouldn't want to be there in the winter. <laughs> It'll be like the Mongolian train on the Trans-Siberian train that we talked about last episode. So, so we saw that, but this was a two-day program, 
and the we had a driver and a guide. Yes. Yep. And we stayed in a cabin, and it was the second day after we went to the Lena Pillars, or was it before that? We went to a zoo. Do you remember that, the zoo? That was on the way back. Yeah. Okay. We stopped at the zoo, and the zoo was really good. And yes. it was all the animals of the Arctic and of the Siberia. Yeah. The Shane was trying to get a picture of a, a timber wolf through the cage. And he held the, the camera trying to get the uh, lens between the wires. And the timber wolf was growling. And when he was about to get it ready so he could take the picture, the timber wolf jumped forward and scared him. And <laughs> he never did get that picture. No, I was done with him. And then maybe I didn't have the repertoire with the animals. Because if you remember that big caribou. Big caribou's. He sat there against the chain link fence, and he had his head down and was grinding his horns into it, basically trying to get to me as I'm taking pictures of him. Yeah, and that caribou's about maybe half the size of an elk, but it's still, with its horns, it's impressive enough. And what the caribou was doing, it was a male, and he was protecting his females. Oh, that's right, because we went over to the female, and he charged over there to get us, too. But the part that I loved the most, besides so I've never seen some of these animals that they had, and I saw a yak for the first time, which I thought was cool, but the thing I thought was the most interesting is we went, and there was an open gate. Yes. And we looked in this gate, Turns out, this was not part of the zoo, this was the hospital veterinarian side, but there was a lynx. On a uh, rope. Yeah, on a leash, and uh, he's being rehabbed or whatever, but he's very active, but he's very, very friendly, and I went over to him, and he just ran up my leg and up into my arms, and here I've got a photo of me holding a lynx, which is essentially a bobcat, and I'm playing and scratching, and he's just kind of, you know, he, he was playing with my jacket, but he wasn't trying to bite me or anything, and just, you know, I was just loving on him, and I love that story. Until you got caught. <laughs> well, yeah, apparently the guy came, oh, no, no, you're not supposed to be in here in this broken English and kicking us out. We're like, oops, how are we supposed to know? We had fun doing it. What else about the zoo do you remember? They had some, a lot of different animals that we've never seen or I've never seen pictures of. Yeah. It was, that was fascinating. And then directly across the street was this old wooden observatory. I mean, it yeah. was literally an observatory with a telescope. I think it was shut down at this point. But it was it looked like an observatory, but it was completely built of wood. It was so out of place in my opinion that it just the way it was built and then right next to it was your girlfriend. <laughs> There's this lady having this lean-to um, right on the side of the road cooking strips of chicken or pork or something. Uh, pork or beef, I think. Or something, doing barbecue right there. And we got a great photo of Dad with her. Both of you all have this huge smile on your face holding up sticks of meat as we take this photo. Well, And it was good meat. <laughs> yeah, it was. Anything else for Yakuts? As far north as the city was, the city, I thought, was fairly clean. It was. And it was uh, 
fair, fairly modern. And that's kind of surprised me. One thing I did do, and in, in, I don't, I'm not against drinking, but I don't drink. But when I was over there, I wanted to taste what their beer tasted like. So I had a beer in, um, I believe it was in Moscow. It might have been St. Petersburg. That was on the west side of it. I had a beer up at Yakush, and that was the north central part. And then I had another beer on the Pacific Ocean. And what was the name of that city? Uh, you, mm. you said it. <laughs> he never gets this one right. <laughs> yeah, Yakush. No, Vladivostok. Vladivostok. Say, even I tell him he doesn't get it right. I love it. Yeah, well, mm. it, getting all your those syllables rolling on your tongue is tough for mm. me. Which, and everything was written in the Cyrillic Russian um, alphabet. And I went over there, and I had all the stuff written in English. You know, Google trying to get around was in English. It didn't do us a lick of good when we were in the subway. You remember that of Moscow? Because yes. they were written in the Russian letters. There weren't even the same number of letters. We'd go <laughs> for one that's like eight letters in English, and it's three letters in Russia. I finally just had to ask people, you know, which way, this way or that way on the train. And anyways. Now, the people over there, if you're walking down the street, most of them kind of act snobbish. They don't want to talk to you, and they look straight ahead and just keep going. But if you ever get one of them stopped and talking to you, it they are very friendly. You got to get that personal touch. Yeah. I want to go back to Yakuts because I do have one more story. Okay. First off, I was a little upset because we did this two-day tour, which was a little pricey by Russian standards, but we wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. Dragged you along. And they said, do you want to ride to the airport in the morning because we had a really early flight? And they ended up charging us more than a taxi would have been. That kind of irritated me. But we left the hotel before they served breakfast. So we're kind of hungry, we get to the airport, we get through security, pretty much the same security and everything we have here in America. And so we get in and we go up the escalator and you got all the, you know, you got gate one, two, three, you know, spread out. And in the middle you have the food court area. And we just, you know, we're waiting like an hour or so. And we're hungry. You know, we haven't had breakfast. And we look over there and they have these beautiful looking turnovers i mean they were gorgeous everything you want i mean like it came out of a parisian bakery the crust was just flaky and beautiful and and i so i got up there and dad's like oh i want one too and you know, i'm like okay two of those and and i'm kind of pointing and she you know cafe and i'm no 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 we want tea and she so she got me the tea you know very broken english but i got across what i wanted and i just pointed at what i wanted because i couldn't read the sign whatever we sit down with our our turnovers and our tea now the first clue on this the turnovers we got that tray was full all the other trays were mostly gone or maybe a fourth of the men there see i didn't clue in on that particular one because I was just really excited. I didn't know if it was going to be apple or cherry, but I was so excited about this turnover. I bit into this thing, and it was fish. It was a fish turnover. It was the most, I mean, I'm sure it tasted good, but when you're expecting cherry or apple and you get fish, it was disgusting. It didn't taste good either. 
Well, on the uh, another thing you tried, it wasn't there, but it was on the train. I was going to get to that one too. <laughs> it, he ordered uh, caviar crepes, and neither one of us there ever had caviar, and we thought, well, you know, we'll try it with crepes. Caviar is like just sucking on a salt tablet. It's that's all you taste is salt. No, that's not true. You got the fish too. Well, salty fish. That's what you're sucking on a salty dead fish. And I ordered this thing. It was like sixteen dollar plate, and I decided, well, I gotta eat the thing. So I'm taking bites of it and just swallowing it whole, so I didn't break any of those eggs. <laughs> okay, so we're done with the acutes. We've come down to Irkutsk. Wait, 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 one more thing. They In the plane, up, I don't know, 30,000 feet? Must have been. You couldn't see the end of the forest. It was that long. I mean, that far. And it's it just woods everywhere. I mean, Russia is a big country. Yeah. You know, we're gonna, I'm going to skip ahead real quick just to tell you how big Russia is. By the time we're done, we were in Vladivostok on the east coast of Russia. And the only flight, which makes sense, we're in a smallish town, the only flight you had to fly back to Moscow, which was seven time zones, and there were still more, two more time zones in Russia that we didn't get to, but we flew seven time zones back to uh, Moscow, and then I went elsewhere, and Dad flew back to Kansas City, and it was only eight time zone difference from Moscow to Kansas City, which means that Russia was as big as Europe, the Atlantic Ocean, and half of America. Yes. Okay, we flew back to Irkutsk. Right next to Irkutsk was one of the things you requested we saw, and we were going to see it anyways, but it was Lake Bacall. Yes, and Lake Bacall is a big lake. It's not surface-wise, it's not as big. I don't believe it's Lake Superior. But it's so deep that it holds more fresh water than any other lake or body of water in the world. And they think it was made by a meteorite hitting Russia and digging a hole where the water runs out of Lake Bacall. It, it starts the Lenin River. And the Lenin River runs north to the Arctic Ocean. But it wasn't until 1972 when they had made a special submarine that could stand the pressure that they finally found the bottom of Lake Bacall. That gives you an idea just how deep it is. It, they found the... I think it's half a mile deep. Yeah, they found the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean before they found the bottom of Lake Bacall. Well, what I found interesting, we went to... There we did several things, but one thing I liked the most we went to this one museum that told about Lake Bacall, and then you went into this room, and it was kind of yellow, and there was rounded well, corners they, and everything. They made it look they, like the inside of a submarine. Exactly, with the windows, and you had little portholes all the way around it, and it was a show, and it was acting like you're in a submarine and talking as you sunk down to the very bottom of Lake Bacall and out the portholes, you can see the light and how it goes away, the different fish and everything. And I thought that was really interesting. It was. It, it's a good way to understand the lake and the lake life. 
and uh, there was a lot of seals in Lake Bacall, which it's a long way from the ocean. And I did not know anything about the seals, and they are adorable. I mean, that was my favorite part was seeing the seals. Irkutsk itself, the town, was a pretty nice little town, too. Yeah, we saw the tank, we saw the icebreaker, and what else did we do? A couple buildings, historic buildings, and that type of thing. But it was mostly about Lake Bacall. Yeah. Well, the icebreaker they used on the on Lake Bacall and on the Lennon River. Yep. And then sometime that night, and we almost missed it, we we got back on the Trans-Siberian train in order to go for three days to Vladivostok. But the reason we almost missed it, besides the fact that everything's written in Russian, very interestingly, they have the different time zone, as I said, but in the train stations and in the train, everything runs on Moscow time. So you've got to figure out where you are and it just it gets confusing yes and i think it's confusing for them too because it you know united states if we ran all the trains on washington dc's timetable and you're in the pacific you would have to sit there and keep adding three hours or four hours four hours everything you did to know when the train was leaving so Real quick, what did what did you think about being on the train itself? I enjoyed the, the trip. It was relaxing. It was fun. It was adventuresome. You were jumping in that window with your camera all the time. Yes. I was raised on a farm, and I like to see kind of what the farms are like out there. And basically... It is a lot like you would think Kansas was. That's the most of Russia is just kind of plains and a lot of grass. We didn't see a whole lot of animals, but we saw some. Uh, Russia is also the largest producer of wheat in the world. In fact, they export more wheat than any other country. And that kind of gives you an idea of what uh, kind of climate it is it's it's a little colder climate than ours the trans-siberian railroad i looked it up before i went and it runs about the southern portion of canada in a line in that parallel well the whole country i think there's one little section that is at the uh, same parallel as the united states the rest of it is the parallel of canada so lots and lots and lots of space, but a lot of it is frozen tundra. Well, that, uh, but a lot of it can be farmed. I didn't see very much mechanized farming. I saw more mechanized equipment, farm equipment in Mongolia than I did in Russia. Which we're going to get to Mongolia here in a minute, but let's finish up the train itself. And we ended in Vladivostok. Yes. And we actually met Steve, who was on the uh, second podcast with me. We met him in Mongolia, and he went ahead, and we got off the train, and Steve greeted us in Vladivostok. And one of my favorite photos of the entire trip, Steve took of you and I with our arms raised at the little monument for the Trans-Siberian train saying 9,200 or something kilometers that we had made the entire trip across the country. 
Yes, that was interesting fun. And that is actually in the middle of the railroad yards. It's not set out where I would think uh, where it, people access to it. You have to climb up and down stairs to get uh, the level you wanted to, the, the unit between the trains that you wanted, so you can go down and have your picture taken. Yep. And when we were in Vladivostok, we had a day or two, and we went to several things, but one of the things, we went to a car museum. And the thing that I found the most fascinating about it, these were all Russian cars, all Russian built. And they had eras from, you know, the 40s all the way till the 80s. And it's amazing how much they looked like some of the American models. I mean, you could look at, I mean, the Jeeps looked pretty similar. The, they had the old 60s that you think of the Beach Boy car. They had one very similar to that, the motorcycle. It was very interesting, even though we're looking at Russian cars, how the style was very similar. What I like about Vanna Glassstock, they had a military museum, but also there was a military base. It was a, yep. it was a naval base. And we were walking down, going to see the submarine, the museum that they made out of submarine. We could go through it. And they shot a cannon off, and Shane just about jumped out of his pants. I mean, that thing scared the crud out of me. But then we went through the uh, submarine museum, and it was very interesting. It was small. It wasn't the nuclear type. It was the World War II type submarine the submarine was very cool the i got a picture of shane in a torpedo tube yeah he was going to launch me out to sea <laughs> and then outside the submarine they had and aircraft uh guns and stuff that that they protected the seaport with and you could go through that and that was very interesting i liked vladivostok yes and the history I've read, it was, I mean, it's strictly a military town because it's where their eastern fleet is based. Yes. And it's only been, I don't know if you knew this, but it's only been in the last 10 to 15 years that even Russian tourists have been allowed to go into that town. I didn't know that. Yeah. One kind of fun part is they had a statue of Lenin in Vatikastok, and he was turned around and had his hand pointing toward Japan like he was reaching out to, to Japan. And the caption on it was something like pointing to the future or, or something and all the locals were like, yeah, he's pointing to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> so let's finish up all that. Let's move to Mongolia. Okay. Which we actually saw Mongolia in the middle of our trip from Moscow, we went straight to Mongolia and then came up and did Yakuts and Irkuts. But we're now talking about Mongolia. And the reason we did Mongolia was, you know, I had this kind of world trip planned for two months. And I was like, well, what's the best way to get from Europe over to Japan, which I thought I was going to go to and I didn't. And I'm like, the Trans-Siberian train, is that still running? And I read more and more and more. And it was, and I decided to invite my dad. And then, you know, I'm like, well, it's, Mongolia is right there. When are we ever going to get to Mongolia again? So we just took the train right down into Mongolia, 
it dropped us off in the capital, which I believe is Ulaanbaatar. What do you think about Mongolia? Well, when the first thing that was really interesting, we were on the Mongolia train, was in Russia, we were going to Mongolia, we come up to the border, and the Russian troops, they come in there and they search your cabin, they search your luggage, and they did quite a bit of checking you out and searching you, and you're leaving the country. And then you go about uh, four to six miles on the train farther. Well, remember, they made us leave the cabin so they could check in the air conditioning area or whatever yeah. and all the little spaces of the train, too. Yeah. And the heater that was across the hall, they checked in it yep. to see if we were smuggling anything out of Russia, I guess. We went about six miles farther into Mongolia, and we went to Mongolia's checkpoint. Mongolia, we're entering their country, and they hardly did anything. But you had to get off the train and then get back on. But their checking of your stuff was not near as much as Russia's was leaving the country of Russia, which I thought it was kind of interesting because I'd be more interested in, in something coming into the country than something leaving the country. This is true, and the only reason we could do this is because Americans are allowed to get a three-year, multi-year visa. I highly recommend you go through Trivista, and I'll put the link down below. When we got to the capital of Mongolia, and in Mongolia, Shane in Russia had planned his trip, and he did it all on the internet, did his research and everything, but when he got to Mongolia, he got a travel agent that was in the capital of Mongolia, which was good. That's the way you should do it. They had got us an interpreter and a driver. And they talked to us first about what we wanted to see. And Shane told them, because Shane had done enough research on it, that he knew what he wanted to see. And we took off. Well, best we could figure out, there are four roads in all of Mongolia. <laughs> They all four were going four different directions out of the capital. So you might say there's just two roads, and they go through the capital and cross over in the capital. But we headed west. North. North out of the capital. And the roads are fine until you got about 10 miles out of the city. And then the roads had potholes in them, and the driver would just kind of weave around like a snake going around potholes all the way down and sometimes he'd go off on the shoulder because the shoulder was smoother than the the road because of all the potholes and then once you get further along roads just went away i mean there was one thing he just going through a field and we're following like a couple sets of tracks well <clears throat> but we went down the road and they stopped and talked and then they went a little farther down the road and they decided that's where they took and they took a, a right off the road that we were on and we started across to the country and they told us that there was no roads here, that they'd started a road and they had pointed the, the money for the road and the contractor had built part of it and then he just quit and took the money and left. But we've taken off across the road I mean, across the fields, and literally, they just drive across the fields, and most, all the land, I believe, is owned by the government. And if the roads where you've been, everybody's been driving, you could, it's eating up the grass, and so there's just two tracks, 
And if they get too rough, you just move over and you make another road next to it. And I counted one place, I counted eight different sets of tracks and you pick the one you want to go in. But once we got off the road and we were starting to cross, I leaned over and I sat beside Steve and I leaned over to Steve and I said, you know, I believe it's smoother off the road than it was up on the paved road. And he agreed with me. That's pretty accurate. And the thing about the Mongolians, and our driver was one of them, they're so used to the nomadic lifestyle. The Our interpreter said that they get lost inside the city, but when they get out there in the open, he basically said, I want to go you know, over there. I want to go west when we were trying to get to this one area. And he just went, and he instinctively knew where to go direction-wise and picked up the road that he wanted to go eventually and they're just very good at getting where they want to go out in the open so you get them in a city and they're lost but out in the open great trackers when it wasn't the first day but one of the days we were going along and they had a the police had a checkpoint and they were checking everybody they have a zero tolerance on drinking alcohol and driving and our driver, he liked the most disgusting thing you've ever tasted. <laughs> and he liked it. It was fermented mare's milk. And that is a mare out of a horse, milk out of a horse. And they get it, and I don't know how they do it, but they ferment it, and it's alcohol drink. And they love it over there. If you go to someone's house or yurt, it's the drink that they greet you with instead of tea or coffee, and you're kind of expected to drink a bowl of this stuff. I had trouble getting a, a small tablespoonful down. It's uh, kind of kicks in that gag reflex, doesn't it? Yes, but it is alcohol, and he would not. Our driver would not drink any of that except in the evening time. If he had it in the evening time, he'd drink it, but. The rest of the time he wouldn't because I think the punishment for driving with alcohol in your bloodstream is very severe over there. You're probably right. Now let's change gears and talk about what we actually saw there before we run out of time. Okay. The first night we went to a monastery, and this is a big monastery. And an old one. I think it was from the 1700s. And they're mostly they're Buddhist in Mongolia. Yeah. And we had to drive like three hours off the paved road to get to this monastery across, just across fields. I mean, this is like one of the three most important monasteries in the country, and there's no real road getting to it. I found that interesting. And it was, it was very interesting when we were leaving. Shane leaned over to me and said, isn't this great? We just saw the most remote mon uh, Buddhist monastery in one of the most remote countries in the world. And I don't think you were with us. I think it was Steve and I. We were walking along. We went up to that shrine that was up on the hill. Yes. And we were coming back. And I saw a dog. And he's carrying something. And I really looked at him. I realized it was a fresh goat leg he's carrying around and gnawing on. Yeah. Gnawing over there. Yeah. It was interesting. But we got to see the monks. And they were in the chanting prayer. Which I thought was very fascinating. Yeah, and the monastery, for being remote, was in nice. It was in nice shape. It and, was. Yeah, needed it, a little bit of paint, but it was a big monastery. I mean, yeah. it would take a lot to paint that thing. 
Yeah, well, not only that, it takes a lot of work, and, yeah. and the monks are the ones that have to do all the work. And the chanting, I thought was interesting. It it went, I mean, there were, I don't know, 12, 15 monks in there chanting, and apparently these chants go on for three to four hours, and they're given essentially slips of paper that are prayer requests, and they're chanting these prayers. Well, not all of them are chanting at the same time because some of them kind of stop and they're playing on their phone and someone else is getting a drink. And and it just, it, the idea, I guess, is the group itself has to move on with the chanting, but not necessarily each person all, the whole time. That could be. I, I don't know. What do you think of it all? Well, I, you know, I liked it. it. Basically, a monastery is a great big fort. It was. It had, did. It had a wall all the way around it, and then had many buildings. I don't know. There must have been fifteen, twenty buildings inside this walled area, and I think they said that it used to have buildings outside the wall area where more the non monks used to live that maintained the thing, but they got destroyed. Another thing, they had yurts that you slept in, and they're like a permanent tent, really. And this older woman, I think she was in her 80s, ran those uh, yurks, and they were for the guests, and they, they charged us for them. And then they fed us also. And she did a lot of work for uh, as old as she was. Yep. And speaking of food, what would you think? Take away the mare's milk. What do you think of Mongolian food? I know what I thought. It's very bland. Yep. Everything, I think, is boiled, except the translator, she was also our cook, and she knew that the Westerners didn't like this boiled food. And Boiled meat and noodles is what they eat all the time. And very little vegetables or fruit or anything like that. Or spice or salt or anything. But uh, when she cooked, she would provide vegetables for us because she knew that's what we liked. Yeah. But anyway, so we left the monastery and we're driving across the country going west. And we knew we were going to make it all the way. We're just driving across fields too. It's just like growing across the prairie back in the 1800s in in the American West. Yeah. But where I was going was we weren't going to make it. We were headed to the ancient capital, Karakum, and we weren't going to make it. So we stopped in the middle of this field I mean we're talking miles in all directions we could see and it's the only yurt there there was two yurts okay together yeah and our interpreter they pulled over and they asked his family if we you know we're travelers and if we could stay with them and apparently this is a very common thing that even Mongolians do you travel and when it's nighttime you ask if you could stay with someone so we stay with these strangers in this yurt. What did you think of that? Well, it, I thought it was interesting. Uh, we slept on the floor. They offered, the first thing they did is offered us that fermented mer- mare's milk. And they fixed dinner for us, which was, I think they put more on to, for us to feed us. They seemed interested, but when we went to bed, we were sitting there, you know, waiting for them to go to bed, and they were sitting there waiting for us to go to bed. And then they said, okay, time to go to bed. Well, once they found out that we were waiting on them, because we didn't, we wanted to be polite. 
Then they said time to go to bed, and they didn't move. They just watched us get ready to throw in our sleeping bags out and everything. They watched us getting ready for bed, and we're all like, okay, this has turned into a little creepy. <laughs> but Ed, it was a family. We're tending sheep and uh, cattle. What they do is they live in a permanent village in the wintertime, and they've got their livestock inside of a fenced area. And then in the summertime, they pack everything up and they go out and they put up these yurts to sleep in. And they're a small house is basically what they are. If one area is bad with wolves or something, then the next year they go someplace else. But if they don't have much trouble with wolves, they'll stay in the same area year after year. Beautiful country. Yes. And we got over to... Karakum, I believe is how you pronounce it. It was the ancient capital during the Genghis Khan Empire. What did you think of that area? It was all right. It was the, the whole country kind of looks the same. Some areas a little rougher than others. They had a fort, though, that was Genghis Khan's capital, and it was made in a fort. And this thing is huge. Pretty much needed a horse to ride across it. Yep, and they had a monastery in there. And we, this one, we actually got a tour through the monastery, and they had a lot of histor- history and stuff like that. But you want to talk about one of the shrines outside the capital. One of the shrines was to dead horses, and they had horse... Race horses. Race horses. But they had all the horses that died, they would take the skull, and they would take there and put it on the ground... And they must have had 40 skulls of horses around this shrine. And they had a a shrine for this turtle, which it was one of the four that marked the extent of the old capital. Yeah, the four corners. Yep. But the most interesting was a shrine to fertility. And they literally had a penis. (laughs) Out of rock. Out of rock. And then they had some sort of... Like a bowl, and you know, kind of like a pedestal that you would grind spices with. And it was, I mean, this thing's big. It was probably five feet. And people would go and they would tie ribbons to it for fertility to have children. And they would throw money in the, the bowl. Yep, to, as a sacrifice. And that was interesting. And even, I think our guide even had a little fun with that one. <laughs> But what else we saw, we went to a hot springs area. The hot springs was actually a tourist attraction to get people there to take soaks in the hot tub. But to get there, you had to cross this shallow river. We were in a 4x4, but it wasn't a big 4x4. But we drove through it, and we went up, and we got a yurt, and we spent the night. This yurt was on concrete all the others were on dirt with rugs over the dirt yes but this and it was a tourist deal and so they had concrete slabs and they put it on and this hot springs just so you guys know when i heard about it i was really excited to go i'm thinking you know like bubbling out of the ground and it's grass around it and you kind of hop in and soak in this water it is an actual hot spring but they take the water and they pipe it down to these yurt camps and almost 
not every yurt camp, but there must have been four or five different like small swimming pools slash hot tubs that this hot spring water got pumped into. So essentially, you're in a hot tub, and it's not. It's very cool to be there, but not as exciting as I was expecting it to be. I think our last day or night, we went to this national park. Well, no, we did that the last day where the original horses, all horses, came from this national park. I'll put the link down below so you can look into it. But I thought that was interesting that all horses in the world came from this. But that night we spent, and she called it the Little Gobi. It has a different name. But they had camels there. Yes. My dad rode his first camel. I'm not as flexible as I used to be. But your legs set way out. I've ridden horses and it didn't hurt. But I rode that camel and it hurt the inside of my legs a big time. Now Steve and I went on a big, a big being a couple mile long camel ride. Dad just went around the camel pen and said, I'm done. I rode a camel, I'm done. No, well, it was hurting. <laughs> but the, the thing I thought was interesting, in the Middle East, they've got one hump camels. The two hump camels, I've come to find out, are only in the Mongolian and Gobi Desert area. And I thought that was interesting. But even more than that, all camels supposedly came from North America. The ancestors to camels came from North America and came across the Alaska Bering Strait Bridge. When humans were going that way, camels were coming this way, or the ancestors. And some went to South America and have become the llama and the alpaca, while these camels came and became the two-hump camel and the one-hump camel. I thought that was very fascinating. Another thing was very fascinating was your fires over there are fueled by camel and sheep dung, and they gave you a big box of it, and you'd get it started, and you had that box. It'd heat up the yurt real fast. <laughs> it was a hot burning fire, but it didn't last very long. Nope. Well, talking about the camel dung, did you know the camel is so efficient living in desert areas that not only when he urinates it comes out as a very thick paste because he's pulled all the moisture out but the poo comes out dry enough that you can burn it right away now i didn't know that because that the camel body sucks that moisture back up i thought that was fascinating and one other thing i want to say about mongolia they have trees over there but these hills that or a mile, you drive up an incline, and it's a fairly steep incline, or go down a fairly steep incline, but it might be a mile long. And you don't have any trees except at the very tops of these hills. The sides of the hills didn't have trees, the bottom of the hill, unless they had a, a, a stream. stream that ran there. The bottoms of the hills didn't have any trees they they would if they had streams but i thought it was funny that all the trees grew on top of everything yep now before we leave mongolia i know what you're going to say but what was your very 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 least favorite thing about mongolia mare's milk really that was it yeah what about going to the restroom oh yeah yeah it they had squatty potties there and 
I, I don't do very good with them because I'm old and my muscles aren't good enough to seem like to hold me up. Yeah, I'm not old and my muscles are fine and I have trouble on those squatty potties. There was one time, I mean, they're not, they're not pretty, but this one time, it literally was a six foot by six foot and six foot deep hole and they had two, they must have been what, two by sixes yeah. going across and you're supposed to put one foot on one, one foot on the other, not fall in, do your business and there's only a little tarp around this hole to block your view from the yurt that's back there. Yeah, the tarp was only about three foot high and it was only on three sides. It was, and and even in the capital, they had outhouses that you squatted over and went into a pit. I mean, not everywhere, but a lot of places in the capital even had that. Yes. You got to be prepared for the squatty potty. Some are nicer than the others. Anything else with Mongolia? What was your favorite thing about Mongolia? I actually believe the, the thing I liked the best was the uh, monastery. Okay. My favorite thing is my least favorite thing at the same time. It was the wide open space. It was fascinating to see this wide open space, the nomadic lifestyle, all that. But the least favorite thing was the wide open space because it took six hours to drive each day to get to the next spot. Everything's so spread out and so wide open. Yeah, I think they said it was the third largest city in Mongolia. And it did not have a road going to it. It was just trails that they, people were people driven across grass to get to that city. And Mongolia, by far, is the least dense country in the world. I didn't know that. Yep. So we spent one afternoon, not the whole afternoon, but one time we ate. It was by a great big lake there, mm -hmm. and I that kind of surprised me that that big of a lake would have been in Mongolia. Yeah, there's many things that surprised me about Mongolia, yeah. but and like I said, I was raised on a farm. They didn't have a lot of farm equipment, but they the tractors most of the tractors were small, but they had some great big combines. I mean, these things were as big as any farmer around here uses on combines and their fields they might be two miles long and a half mile wide yep it was fascinating i'm glad i got to spend the whole month doing all that with you it was a trip of a lifetime and it would take a month to do it all and if you go don't try to cut corners try to see things you'll never be back to see it again no and if you have limited time i would say don't stretch it Make sure you see each of the spots you go and limit where you're going to go. And with that, we are going to wrap up this episode of the Guiding Light podcast, this two-parter talking about Russia, Mongolia, and the Trans-Siberian train. So, Dad, you want to tell them goodbye? Well, I want to say one other thing. If you go and you go to try to see the whole country of Russia like we did, you better go with somebody that you get along with mm -hmm. and you don't have fights with because you're the only ones talking to each other and we had a wonderful time together. I would agree with that. <laughs> so this is Captain Shane telling you fair winds and following seas and I'll see you on the next podcast.